You are listening to a podcast from the Columbia Journalism Review. I'm Deputy Editor Clint Hendler. On this episode, in celebration of CGR's 50th anniversary, we'll be talking with Jim Boylan, the founding editor of the Columbia Journalism Review. He ran the magazine from its first issue in the fall of 1961 until 1970, and then again for a second stint from 76 to 79. He's been a contributing editor ever since, and now writes a standing feature called Brief Encounters, a page of short book reviews in each issue. Today we have with us Jim Boylan, who is CJR's founding editor in the studio. Jim, thanks so much for coming to talk with us. Not at all. Great. So, um, Jim, I wanted to start all the way back at the beginning. What was your job at the Columbia Journalism School at the time that CJR was founded, and, and how did you come to be here? I was hired as an assistant to Dean Edward Barrett, who was the new dean who came in in 1957, and I started the summer of 57. I ran the alumni office, among other things, that kind of job. So you weren't uh, on faculty at that time? You were more sort of a... Pretty far from being on faculty, although they threw me into a classroom from time to time. So tell me a little bit about Ed Barrett. Ed Barrett was a dropout from the school, and uh, this meant that his predecessor as dean, Carl Ackerman, did not really care for the choice but he was selected by the university, and he had a career at Newsweek and at the State Department and in public relations at Hill and Knowlton, and then was chosen to come here. And he turned out to be a very energetic person. He, he really sort of pushed the school ahead after it had been stagnating for a while. And his uh, association with CJR lasted long after his time as dean. Yes, about 20 years. Uh, He left as dean during the Troubles in 1968, but came back as publisher through most of the 70s, working under Dean Abel. Where did the idea for CJR come from? I think it germinated first with Ed Barrett's approach. He was using speeches and reports and so on to issue criticisms of the press in general. It struck me that the criticism would be better if it were more sustained, more detailed, more continuous. So I proposed a publication that would come out regularly, which I called Columbia University Journalism Review, And I sent Ed a memo about this. And uh, as I think uh, I've said elsewhere, it could have just died on his desk, but he picked it up, thought there was something there, and uh, something more than a year after that, we were putting together a magazine. In that intervening year, how was the idea initially received? We had a tiny faculty then, a tiny full-time faculty, and I'd say it was about 60-40 in favor, some a little afraid of the idea, and two or three strong supporters of the idea. We met as a group, talked it over for a long time, and eventually uh, a memo was issued by the associate dean, Richard Baker, saying, well, we should have this publication, but let's not make it too tough. Let's uh, 
not offend too many people. Well, we adopted that, but secretly, I wasn't going to buy that, and I knew it. <laughs> I don't think Ed Barrett was going to buy it either. <laughs> he, uh, I think he wanted the magazine to be impartial, but uh, tough when it had to be. What hole did you see yourself as filling? What was not being written about or covered in the journalism world that CJR was going to meet? Well, there was no continuing forum for critical discussion of journalism in a non-academic way. There was Neiman reports coming out of the Neiman program at Harvard and a couple other publications, but that wasn't their chief role. We wanted something that would raise issues about the performance of journalism and uh, critique it in a uh, rational way. When the idea was initially came up, you said faculty was split maybe 60-40. What were the concerns of the 40? Well, some of them were specific. Uh, John Holmberg, who ran the Pulitzer Prize, saw trouble down the road, and there was a little trouble. Vis-a-vis -vis the Pulitzers, that there yeah, would be confusion yeah. or conflict? Yeah. Or? Uh, we eventually ran an editorial criticizing the operation of the Pulitzers, and he abstained. <laughs> but uh, some of it was political. They, they were of the temperament that didn't want to make the waters stir. <laughs> So these days, the faculty, you know, they're invited to pitch us to bring us uh, uh, article ideas. Um, if there's an expert on a subject on staff, we might, you know, seek their advice on something or, you know, uh, maybe even let them see a manuscript for suggestion. But they don't have any control or authority or, or regular right to read the magazine. Uh, were, were things different in the early days? Yes, I started out with a, the idea that the review had to have strong faculty support. And I tried to integrate faculty into the operation as much as possible. I uh, usually had a reading committee to give me evaluations of manuscripts. One faculty member was the books editor. This went on. It was a probably an unjustified demand on their time, but they, they pitched in, and I was grateful for it. And I thought it ensured the review's uh, support within the school. So you did two stints as editor, right? One from 61 until sometime in the late 60s? Yeah, 69. 69, and then you picked up again in the 70s again, right? 76, yeah. 76, okay. Tell me a little bit about where the money for CGR came from. The best source of funding was Columbia University. Grayson Kirk, whose name is cursed now, was our benefactor. He was the president who left after the SDS in 1968 and all of that. That's right. That's right. But uh, he was very steadfast, not only in seeing that we got a flow of money uh, on loan, but uh, in resisting complaints about the review that occasionally came to him. So he was our ally. Ed Barrett scratched around looking for money. It was hard to come by, although he was very successful in raising it for scholarly programs. But I think the first chunk of money that came to the review was the Ford Foundation in uh, 1966 or 67. One complaint that I take it President Kirk shielded the review from were some unhappiness from the DuPont family. 
Yes, the uh, DuPonts you, went straight to Low Library with their complaints. Low Library, where the president's office is, yes, right? Correct. So tell me, um, what article were they responding to, and what were they upset about, and who wrote the article? We sent Ben Bagdikian, who was our Washington correspondent, to go investigate the DuPont newspapers owned by the DuPont Corporation in Wilmington because we had indications that the papers were kind of under the thumb of the DuPonts, not behaving like uh, independent uh, newspapers, shading the news in DuPont's favor and so on. Ben went there and uncovered the whole story, and uh, the DuPonts were extremely unhappy about it and uh, complained to Grayson Kirk, complained to the dean, did not really send us a letter. I thought they, they thought we were too trivial to send a letter to. <laughs> but the interesting outcome on that is that eventually they came to see that for them to own these newspapers was wrong, and they divested some and, years later. I mean, how direct of a line can you draw between Vindikian's critique and, and that? Do you think it raised the consciousness for them, or...? I think they understood what the problem was from that point. It took a while, and I'm sure they did not give us credit at the time they divested. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I thought it was one of a good many important articles that Ben wrote for us. Ben Bickdeekian's early association with the magazine really credit your ability to find talent, considering the career he went on to have. It's, it's great to see his name and when yeah, you look back in the archives. He was, he was a wonderful asset for us. Uh, one other great article he wrote was uh, after the Cuban Missile Crisis on what the effect was on the independent press of having national security concerns bearing down on you like that. Could you tell us another article or two from your tenure as editor that, that really stand out as you know, proud achievements? In my second term, I was very proud of a series generated by John Swan uh, who was an associate editor on the staff at that time, a series of articles on coverage of occupational safety, uh, workplace hazards, and uh, the sort of slapdash coverage it was getting. And he covered this on newspapers as well as other industries. This must have run for about a year, I guess. So I, I was uh, quite pleased with that. Uh, not during my tenure, I thought the Richard Reeves piece on Newark was terribly important. That story brought a lawsuit to CJR, right? Yes. I think that's the only libel suit that went to trial. We were threatened with a libel from time to time. It was usually pretty empty. Yes, it did go to trial. Scudder, the publisher of the Newark Evening News, said he had been defamed. The court defined him as a public figure, which meant under the law he had very high standards uh, set for him to win anything, and he didn't win anything. That was a, a sort of a silly settlement. <laughs> what were the terms of the settlement? That we run a short statement saying we didn't mean to uh, harm him personally, and that we would not write anything else about it, which really offended me, because I had an account of the case ready to go, and I thought it was an important thing to run. If you were offended by that term of the settlement, how is it decided that you had to agree to the settlement? The lawyers agreed between themselves for each side, and the dean agreed. 
Got it. It's just not Ed Barrett anymore. Are there any irate uh, phone calls, letters, subjects, harangues that you can remember being on the sharp end of as a result of an article? Oh, there are a lot. I don't remember them much anymore. I had one memorable call, though. I do remember. She was Claire Booth Luce, the playwright, wife of Henry uh, Robinson Luce of Time, Inc. During the Goldwater campaign, we ran a sort of a poll to see what various people thought of the coverage of Goldwater. And she had been very upset about the media coverage of Goldwater because she'd gone completely right wing by then and thought Goldwater was wonderful. And she was ready to talk all afternoon. (laughs) So I said, yes, Mrs. Luce, yes, Mrs. Luce, yes, Mrs. Luce. And at the end, I said, thank you, Mrs. Luce. And so she w- had not been invited to contribute to this roundtable? No, that's why she called. And rather thought she should have been. She'd rather talk about it, you see, <laughs> and write a little squib for us. So I don't think she ever did write anything for us. <laughs> You've been a constant contributing editor to CJR, and for the last, uh, I don't know how many years, have written a short selection of book reviews for our book review section. Yeah, I've, I've done various things over the years. Uh, Spencer Claw, as editor in the 80s, had me... Uh, writing heavyweight editorials. That was fun while it lasted, but I didn't want to do it anymore. I've been doing this little book chore of mine, which is a a page per issue. Well, you might do it a chore to write. It's not a chore to read. They're always great. Thank you. um, Uh, I've been doing that for longer than I can count. (laughs) But I'd like to know, you know, given your long, constant association with us, and I think you're you're certainly our longest and most faithful reader, what do you see as the similarities and differences between um, what CJR is doing today and, and what it was doing in your time as editor? Well, I look back to the original CJR, and it was a quarterly publication we didn't get out on our deadlines very well to start with. <laughs> so I have a feeling that from that point, it could only go up so far as <laughs> being timely journalism. And I think it's reached a kind of a peak now because it not only has its six issues a year, but it has its presence online, which I think is terribly important. I really dreamed about having some way to respond to issues immediately back at the beginning and uh, never could figure out a way and now there is a way and I think it's terrific. Your path in life after CJR, you didn't go on and continue to work in magazines. Uh, No, I became a full-time academic. I went up to the University of Massachusetts in Amherst, had a nice job there, uh, working both in journalism and history. Retired from there in 1991 did a couple books since then, including uh, a history of the school. Jim, is there a moment uh, after a story where you got a big response or you saw a debate or a conversation sparked where you were able to say to yourself, wow, people are reading us, we're beginning to have an impact? This is not really a debate, but it was something we felt we had to do because historically we were obligated. It was the Kennedy assassination. And we put together a sort of a script indicating where the individual correspondents were during that whole episode. And then there was a bunch of supplementary material on the coverage and all of that. And we got a very positive reaction to it, which surprised me because essentially 
I have to say, frankly, it was a cut-and-paste operation. I think we did it all right, but uh, people were responding so emotionally to that material at the time. We got a lot of praise for it. I read it recently when preparing for the 50th anniversary, and it's, it's very moving. Um, and, and we actually plan to run it on the website oh, as, a, I'm, I'm as part of the celebration. I'm glad to hear that. So um, people will get a chance to read it. I'd love to hear a little bit about your personal life. You're married, children. How old are you now? Oh, yes. I'm happy to talk about that. I'm 83. And uh, I was going to say I was younger and that I started the CJR when I was 11. (laughs) (laughs) But I I married a newspaper woman, Betsy Wade, who is known primarily for uh, leading a lawsuit against the New York Times for discrimination, which they've won more or less. (laughs) And I'm still married to her. We have two children, middle-aged and uh, six grandchildren. And uh, we're dividing our time between New York and Stonington, Connecticut, where we do some work for the Historical Society. Editing, we're, we're both editors by uh, instinct. Right, you never can quit. Yes, that's right. um, well, that's wonderful. I would just want to say again, thank you so much for coming in to talk with us a little bit about yourself and CJR's history. And, and I'd hope in the, uh, the list of offspring, you'd count generations of CJR staff and writers. Um, we all have a great I'm, debt to I'm, you. And I'm very happy to do that. Great. Thank you so much, Tim. All right. Thank you very much, Jim. Goodbye. This has been a Columbia Journalism Review podcast produced by Clint Hendler. Theme music by Tim Hoyt. Visit CJR.org for fresh media criticism and to subscribe to our prize-winning magazine, now celebrating our 50th year. The Columbia Journalism Review at CJR.org. Strong press, strong democracy.